We get it. Attention spans just aren't what they used to be. Heads in social media and eyes on Netflix. But what do people do with their ears? Well, for one, they're listening to audio. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com. Welcome to The Connection, a weekly radio program where we share our experiences and expertise with stories of caring, courage, and change right here in Connecticut. Listen to learn about needed resources to improve your well-being and transform your life. Now, here are the hosts of The Connection, Lisa dematis Lapore and Ann Baldwin. Good morning, and here's another edition of The Connection on WTIC News Talk 1080. Good morning to our listeners, bright and early. This is uh, Lisa dematis Lapore, CEO from The Connection, and we are continuing our fascinating talk with two of our guests today, um, Charles Barber, uh, who works at The Connection, and also uh, William Juneboy Outlaw. What we're talking about today is a book that is coming out about William's life that Charlie um, was is the author of called Citizen Outlaw, One Man's Journey from Gang Leader to Peacekeeper. Welcome, Charlie and William, to the show. Thank you. This book is about William's life whose journey from housing project youth to ruthless gang pin kingpin to change making community advocate and it represents a vital next chapter in the ongoing conversation about race and social justice in america so when william was in his early 20s he was sentenced to 85 years in prison for homicide and armed assault the sentence brought his brief but prolific criminal career as the head of a 40-member cocaine gang in new haven connecticut to a close. Behind bars, William quickly became a feared prison, quote-unquote, shot caller with 150 men under his way. Then everything changed, and your sentence was reduced by 60 years. Yes. Wow. At the same grace of God. That's right. So today, though, William is obviously has been out of prison for a while and has made amazing contributions in the New Haven community. And um, so what we'd like to do is pick up the show today and talk about what happened, William, when you got when you finally got out of prison. Well, it was at least in 2008 after doing the 20 years in prison. uh, The city was different. My family structure was different. Um, and you had children, right? How many yeah, children? My, I had, at that time, I had five kids at that time. And I came home and I made another baby. I have a five-year-old son by the name of Joshua that I love dearly. <laughs> uh, Congratulations. So I got six, six kids Six kids. Yeah, so when I left, I had five. Uh, that was the most one of the most difficult things in my life, too, coming home after 20 years. And my kids really don't know me, and I really don't know them far as people you know i know them but i don't know them and they were all babies when you went in right Right. so right so now they have this you know this uh trying to be a parent after 20 years is a difficult thing that a lot of people don't understand coming home trying to be a parent so i took parenting classes when i was in but none of that you know worked when it came to of course uh, still trying to get to know Mm -hmm. so uh 
is better now and me and my kids way much better but that was one of the most difficult part of my life uh getting those relationships and trying to be a father so you're you know you're away for you know 20 years you come back everything has changed what what was the world like for you do you remember the day you you were got out what was that like oh wow i didn't i a true story i got out uh i went to a halfway house and I didn't sleep for the first 14 days I got to the halfway house. I literally didn't sleep. I, I couldn't sleep. I was staring out the window. I heard, it was like the first time in 20 years I actually heard ambulance. I actually heard, you know, squeaking of cars and, you know, just the noise, the capacity of being back in the city and the noise wouldn't let me sleep. Where I was in, you know, country clubs, considered country clubs and, you know, all I heard was crickets. Now I'm hearing, you know. Wow. That's, a hearing, hu- that's really a huge adjustment. Oh, that was a big adjustment. But the most biggest probably adjustment probably was me just, you know, getting out. You know, still, you know, a lot of people was worrying. You know, I was told that, you know, a lot of people was worried that I was going to go back to my old lifestyle. So it was a business. Everybody had their own opinion about me, but... I already had my own opinion. I already knew what I was going to do uh, by no means necessary. So the first thing I did, I, tr- I, I told Charlie this. I went down to the New Haven City Hall, and I tried to meet with Mayor DeStefano. Uh-huh, yeah. I went up to the office, and I tried to make an appointment to meet with the mayor at the time with DeStefano, and uh, it didn't work out. I said, my name is William Hall. I'd like to meet with the mayor. I'd like to set up an appointment. And uh, she said, okay. She took the information, but I never got a call. So then I went and sat on the green and just soaking, soaking, you know, the atmosphere, and it was amazing. And of course, all the cars were different. That's Computers right. weren't really around oh, when you first wow. went in. Cell phones yeah. didn't exist. Uh, I try to cross the street. Usually, you know, I'm more agile. I can just cross the street. I swear to God, I thought the cars was going 50 miles per hour. I was scared to cross the street. It took me about 15 minutes to get across the street downtown over there near Tower 1, Tower 2. I mean, it seems like, and then it dawned on me, you know, hit the walk button. After 15 minutes, go hit this button, it's going to say walk. And I never, you know, looked at walking like that. I just run across the street. I never, you know, but that was, that was, that was, just crossing the street was different for me. but one thing that got me by was a people person. So I went out job searching and I landed a job. I'll never forget. Uh, I was in jail and I always look at this flatbread commercial at Dunkin' Donuts. So I was like, wow, can't wait to get out and get me a couple of them. <laughs> <laughs> so I went to Dunkin' Donuts and there they was, just like on TV. I was like, oh, let me get two of them. And then it was, it was, um, my application was right there, says I'm now hiring. So I took an application, and the lady was right there. She said, would you fill it out right now? So I filled it out. I sat down and filled it out. So I came back to the counter. She said, will you be willing to interview right now? So I was interview ready. I had the clothes on and everything. I was, you know, decent looking. So I said, yeah. So she sat down. <laughs> she asked me a bunch of questions. And, you know, I'm professional. You no, know, I'm ready because I didn't prepare myself for this day. So I aced the interview, and then I said, let me be honest with her. You know, I already checked the box. I was convicted. So let me be a little bit more depth and honest with her. I said, excuse me, miss. You know, I really want this job, but I'm going to tell you, I just came home after doing 20 years. She was like, wow. She said, Mr. I would have never knew that if you didn't tell me. She said, but the way you conducted yourself when you spoke so, 
elegant in an interview, I'm going to give you the job. That's fantastic. So I worked at Dunkin' Donuts <laughs> on Welly Avenue for seven months until I landed another job. And I must say that was the most best experience in my life because that working at Dunkin' Donuts gave me more people skills. I'm dealing with all people, you know. Mm-hmm. It was my first job ever. In your entire life. Right. And it's Dunkin' Donuts. And I don't know how fast Dunkin' Donuts was until I got there on Welly Avenue. So um, I caught on real fast and, you know, but uh, it was a good job because then, I, you know, I started working the window. So now I'm meeting people. Yeah. And people coming to all different Netflix. They did more business than they'd ever done because everybody wanted to know where Juneboy had ended oh, up. Oh, of right. course. They sure did. They did. And then the guy that owned it, he said, I don't know who you are, but you can work whenever you want to work. How many hours do you want? <laughs> Their so, sales went up yeah, by 150%. You know, it was like everybody was you know, still wondering. And uh, the most serious part of that, so I worked there for like seven months. And it was, like I said, my people skills. and It helped me meet so many people. And I've seen people, wonderful people I met just working there. And it was a good experience for me. Then I landed another job, which is, uh, I was uh, fortunate. A friend of mine was already doing outreach work. He was a street outreach worker. He said, man, you'd be good for this, you know. And my plan was to come home and be a drug counselor because I already had prepared and took went to, uh, took a class and I was in prison and I was going to be a drug counselor. And God moved me in that direction. So he took me to the office and I met with the head lady, Miss Tenney, and uh, she said, I like the way you, you know, talk and I know a little bit about you. She said, you really want to do this work, helping kids? And I was like, why not? And I took that job and I've been there ever since. That, and that was about 10 years ago. So William is now, I think it's fair to say, legendary in New Haven where... The crime rate in New Haven has dropped considerably in the last 10 years, and there are federal officials who think that he is the number one reason why. There's a lot of good things going on in New Haven. The police are doing an excellent job. Um, But what William was able to do when he got the outreach job is connect with young people. He has kind of the ultimate street cred in New Haven. Right. And so the kids, he's, William's a big guy. They look, literally look up to him, but they metaphorically look up to him. So... Within about a year of that Dunkin' Donuts, which was the perfect re-entry job. Absolutely. Right? Right. And because he'd never had a legit job in his life. He was in early 40s. Uh, within a year, you get warring gangs together and negotiate a truce. Can you tell us a little bit about that, William? This is all in the book, by the way. Yeah. I mean, I was, uh, like I said, I got the job at New Haven Family Lines at the time. And it was two neighborhoods that was really warring against each other. And, uh New Haven area, two different separate neighbors. One was in New Hall, one was in the uh, Dwight area. And they was really uh, going at it, shooting. And a couple of people even got killed. So uh, uh, nobody really wanted to know how to go. So I said, you know, we need to go talk to these kids, man. Uh, the kids in New Hallville, I had a little report with them, but I didn't know the kids from Dwight area. So I made it my business to go over there. And you know, so... And behold, when I get over there, I mean, it's like they knew me more than I knew what they knew me. So they knew me, and I didn't think these kids knew me, but they knew of my negative me. They knew my old reputation. So, and, you know, I said, look here, man, we're going to uh, have a meeting. I want to you know, set up a meeting with kids from New Hallville, and you guys going to meet tomorrow, and we're going to go have peace, and we're going to sit down and talk. So they was like, oh, yeah, okay, they bought into it. 
So I told my friend to get the Newhall kids, and I went and got those kids. I pat them down, put them in my car. <laughs> I don't put nobody in my car, so I pat them down. They got in the car, and we went over to the office, and I ordered like seven, eight pieces and uh, slapped the pieces in the middle of the table. They was across each other. I you said, even well, brought hand sanitizer for the right, kids. Right, hand sanitizer <laughs> on the table, and I said, look here, you guys eat first, and then we'll talk. You know, so, you know, I, you know, it was part of the mediation training I did. So, I, you know, I just wanted to see the vibe. And so they ate pieces and, you know, nobody really saying nothing. And then, you know, we got into the nitty-gritty and it got it got really serious in there. And then I took control and, you know, and after about an hour and a half of mediation, they agreed that they would, you know, seize the violence and they won't say nothing to each other. And if something occurs that they do get into something or is about to get into something with each other, they would give me a call. So, you know, again, um, you've turned into such a role model um, for all of the, the, you know, your resilience. You have the most amazing resilience. On the last show, too, you talked about that you were in eight months in solitary. I can't even imagine how you, how you can survive 18 minutes, let alone 18 years. Um, and we'll get into that in a minute. But William, what is it that you what is it that you instill in these kids today in New Haven? What is the message? I mean, they look up to you, they see that you change your life around, but why do you think it is that when they look at you, they listen to you and they want to make a change? I think it's probably because I'm genuine with them. You know, it just it goes beyond my job, you know. Uh I try to get into the household too. So when I take on a kid and I'm talking to a kid, I want to get in the household. When I say get in the household, first thing I ask him, who's your mother and father? Well, if he only got his mother, then I know that's a problem. The father's not around. That would be my first problem. I, I check that off. He don't have a father. My second goal is to get into the home, into the home, to see how they're living. If they're living in poverty, what do they have? You know what I'm saying? So I get into the home. If I see the home is not decent, then I check that off. So now I know two areas I got to work on. I understand he don't have a father, but now my number one area is making sure his home is comfortable. So I'll see what's needed in the home. And then I will reach out to the Ustat in New Haven, which is ran by Jason Barler as a man that has helped me on many levels, beds from a bed, from a bed. I go, I say, can I use the bathroom? I go look at the bathroom, look at the room. I see they don't have a bed or if they do got a bed, it's on the floor, a mattress on the floor. So my connection would be to go to Jason and be like, yo, DCF can't get involved. They just need a bed. Right. And what I've seen, William, because I've seen William in action on the streets in New Haven. And if you hang out with New Haven, the kids just come out. Right. They surround him. They're like, right. it's like a football huddle around him within a couple of minutes. And what I've seen, though, it's interesting to me is you, you go hard on the tough kids and you go soft on the kids that might have mental health issues or substance abuse issues. So... He can turn on a dime from being a teddy bear, engaging people in services. Then well, the kids who have a chip on their shoulder, he goes hard on them. But, you know, I think, uh, the William, you talked about this before, which is like you have survived some of the toughest situations in your life. You really have. And you've had to learn how to read a person really quick. Right. right? Especially being in all the different prisons that you were in. So I could see that you, you just immediately know like exactly what's going on. You're really tuned into that. Right. And, which, and, and I try to stay abreast of what they're into. You mm -hmm. know, I mean, I, then I, the most important thing, I try to be the message that I bring. 
So when they see me, they always see I'm trying to be respectful. And then I hammer home, like Charlie said, the kids that's more difficult that, you know, everybody's not going to listen. That's why that shooting goes some shooting goes on. People are not going to listen. But, you know, those the kid I go right to and knock on his door and say, let me have a conversation with you. Death and jail is waiting for you. Which one you want? If you don't want death and jail, you want to put all that down, I'm here to help you. But if you want to continue doing the path you're going, death and jail is waiting for you. You know, so like Charlie said, the ones that's, you know, got to go hard, got to go harder. The ones, you know, that I think have mental health issues, I try to get them the resources. But I'm there for help. They know I'm there to help. I'm not there to harm. And they know that they can call me at any time. And, I'm, you know, if I'm not there, I got somebody that can be there for them. That's you know? amazing. And, uh, I mean, I always tell Charlie, I wish that, you know, it was more people involved. And the people in the community always say, what can I do? What can I do? Well, if you don't got time, you can make a donation. Well, what, so what can, let our listeners know, what can people do to help? Well, I mean, even if you live in the suburbs and it says it's not affecting you, it is affecting you. I mean, crime, you don't want no crime, no violence, no crime. I don't want no violence. I don't want domestic violence. I don't want no violence. I don't want shooting. I don't want no violence. But how can you help? I mean, you can donate. You can find the, the, the local next, the, whoever got a local nonviolence program that's going towards teens, you can donate clothes, you can donate uh, money, you know what I'm saying? If you live in the community, you can just engage. You see a kid, how you doing? Huh? I live right here, what's your name? Uh, a lot of these kids just need a, a conversation. You know, sometimes it's just a conversation with some of these kids, and then sometimes it's as little as talking to a kid and you say, hey, are you hungry? Because a lot of these kids didn't eat. Right. So it could be as that. I don't think uh, society in a whole understand poverty in, in urban now in urban communities i don't think they understand you know everybody think it's just the welfare system no it's a deeper poverty than that do you feel that um not having a dad was really a huge um impact on your life when you were when you were little do you think that you know what do you think exactly happened oh. for you that um not Major. having a father, that's that's really big. I mean, you always want approval from some man figure, you know. Uh, I mean, I always wanted my dad to be in my life, you know. Uh, I was jealous of individuals that had their father. Did you know your dad? Yeah, I mean, that situation too, I mean, is, uh, wow. Uh, that situation, you know, with my dad was really, you know, a lot of personal things happened with me and him mm-hmm. and that I'm still trying to find answers about. I'm sure. And he passed away, but I'm still searching answers as far as, you know, uh, this, is my, this is my dad. Did my dad, is he my dad? For right. one, For one, is he my dad? For two, if you know, where the connection broke at. Mm-hmm. You know, because he never was in my life, you know, and I can't really get those answers down to my mother. She's, you know, she's elderly. She's, you know, she don't want to talk about it. She's a little, you know, she's getting up in age where she don't want to talk and she can't remember. But I need those answers I never got. So imagine a kid that goes through life and never get those answers. Yeah. I mean, lucky I redeemed myself and, and worked on myself and seen a psychologist and it helped me get past it. But there's still answers I love to have that I can't get. 
So, you know, but I know that plays a big role in the urban community not having a father because when I was growing up, I was jealous of the next kid that had a course, father. Of course, or a mother, right? Yeah, and not having a mother. And a lot of kids in our community being raised by their grandmothers for that's whatever right. reasons. And that's, you know, something that, you know, people don't look at. You know, in the, the, the first show that we did, what really struck me um, was you talked about a conversation you had when you spoke with your daughter about going to school and what school to go to right. and how that really changed your life and your path about getting involved in education yourself and reading and really, you know, moving yourself forward because you, you said you had said that you felt so small and you wanted to make a difference and be, be a really good dad, but be a really good person and role model. Um, so I kind of want to give you that little gift back that that's pretty amazing that the story you just shared that you're able to make this change in your own life and be a role model to your children right because that's plus all these other kids of their lives that you're touching in new haven um tell our listeners about what was it like to you know be 18 months in solitary confinement how did you how did you get through i mean how did you psych yourself out or what did you do how did you cope to get through that after talking with Dr. Whitmire, I think I probably lost my mind those 18 months being in confinement. I really do. I, uh, being in that cell for 18 months was, uh, it had me go far as possible that I can remember as a child. So being in there, some days I probably was in there acting like a child, trying to relive your childhood. Your mind played tricks on you, you know? You, 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 whatever you think about, that's what you try to act like at that moment. Nobody's in here looking around, so that's who's right. going who's gonna to know? So when I was thinking about my childhood, I would act like a child. I would try to talk like a child. Nobody in there but me. So, you know what I'm saying? That's how close I was trying to get to it. And so then, you know, I always, you know, I'm going to be honest that that solitary kind of confinement always had me think about my victim. When I was in solitary confinement, it was like it had me really think about him in a positive way, you know. It had me say, uh, "I'm gonna do something positive for him when I get out." I, was, I always thought about doing something positive for him when I get out. No matter I was in solitary confinement, I thought about him a lot in a positive way. And then it was also the um, one of the things that hang out with William. You kind of think of solitary confinement as as quiet. It's actually super loud because a lot of the the prisoners are there are folks with mental illness so they're screaming a lot right. there's a lot of these are, this is an old basement for 1903 building so there's I keep thinking of the movie Papillon yeah let me tell you the most thing I mean I, 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 I this is the first time they was playing chess so when I'm in solitary I'm hearing somebody saying L295 I'm like what are they talking about and they're doing this all night and I really can't sleep but they done made a chessboard out of soap. And they done put the numbers on the side of the chessboard. So you take papers and you make, you write king on it, queen. And he got the same board. So is he, if he take the paper and he call out a number. They're shouting across the hall from each other. So the, the numbers on the board wow. is now, you got the numbers on the side of the board. So you're going to move the queen to L5. So now you can see the board. Amazing. I mean, and I was, it took me almost five months to say, what y'all yelling out these numbers for every night? 
because you can't yell out, you know what I'm saying? I mean, I'm not the type of person to yell out, hey, man, stop yelling out. I just thought he was just yelling out numbers because he was just bugging or he was losing his mind. And the other guy yelled back, but they was actually playing chess every night. And then in Kansas, the time in, in uh, Kansas, William just told me recently that it would flood. And because the plumbing was so bad and also disturbed prisoners would jam in their toilets. And right. so the, he, the water would go up to two or three feet high. And, of course, the guards aren't terribly engaged in fixing it. So there would be days that would pass with two or three feet of water with raw sewage in it. Fortunately, you had a double bunk, so you'd have to go up to the top and just wait it out. Right. Wait it out until they fix it. That, that happens all the time. And you know, so that was that was probably the probably hardest part for me to go through that. In, in some ways, were there was there more crime going on within the walls of prison than out outside of the walls? Oh, most definitely. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I mean, prison. You know, people it's a way it's a will. Man made it, man get it in. They say <laughs> that's the saying. Man made it, man get it in. Yeah. So I mean. I mean, everything goes on in prison. But one thing I got to say in prison, you don't have to be a part of that. Well, that's what I was just going to say. And that's what I learned about. You know, you don't have to be a part of that. You can isolate yourself and you can get all that education and you can change and you can do, you know, you know, you can be, you know, acts. Basically, ask yourself what you're going to do while you're here. You're going to better yourself or you're not. You're going to be over here or you're going to be over there. And it's the same way out here I tell guys, you know, either you're going to be on this street or you're going to be on that street. You close your eyes, you know what's going on on this street. Close your eyes, you know what's, I tell them like this, you close your eyes, you know what's going on on Dixwell Avenue. You close your eyes, you know what's going on Broadway. And <laughs> this is a message that you give the, the you give these youth when you talk to them do they ask well, you yes, to share you their your story sometimes and ask well, you what happened well i'm so i'm so fortunate because right after i landed a job at the outreach worker i i landed a job at goodwill reentry program mm -hmm. so i work also with goodwill reentry program and what do you do there exactly i do there i go inside the prisons Oh, you do. Oh, wow. Same prison that he was at. What's that like for you to co to be on the other side? Of so now I go back into uh, the prisons and work hand in hand with uh, ex offenders preparing them for their reentry. Oh, but fantastic. the most important thing about that is, and I just, uh, me and my coworker was thinking about this how many fathers and sons that I have ran across that I work with their kids right. and I work with the father. Right. So that gives me double credibility because the father know about my reputation at this age and I'm working with the kid. So when the kid asks his mother or father, is this guy the real deal? And they all say, if you don't listen to this guy, then you're not, you don't really don't listen. And I tell kids, this, if you don't listen to your parents, it's going to be hard to listen to me. That's right. You know what I'm saying? Because that's where the first disrespect come in. When you stop listening to your parent, it's going to be hard for you to listen to anybody else. So I tell kids, so you have to respect your parents. You know, you're changing generational cycles here. You are breaking these generational cycles of people who are, you know, going down the wrong path or making bad decisions. And you're, you know, you're kind of doing similar work that we do at The Connection, but in a more profound way. Because you walk the walk and you're talking the talk. And what you're doing is you're bringing people back together again. And you're changing, I mean, you're like, you're like changing the world here. This is amazing. We're talking right now to um, 
William Juneboy Outlaw and um, Charlie Barber, um, who's written a book about William's life called Citizen Outlaw, One Man's Journey from Gang Leader to Peacekeeper. And the book is officially out on October 15th. But Charlie, tell all our listeners how they can, because I, I already pre-ordered mine. You want to go ahead and tell people how they can do that? It's on Amazon. Um, Charles Barber, Citizen Outlaw is the name of the book, available for pre-order and look for us in the fall. Um, before we wrap up today, William, um, can you just give, um, what do you, what message do you want to give to people who are listening today or who might be outside, you know, their children or they may be involved in some type of crime? Well, I always tell people there's three things that's never, three things is never too late to do. Change is one of them. It's never too late to change. It's never too late to be a parent. It's never too late to get an education. Those three things. Wow, that's never so too, powerful. It's never too late to do those three things. It's never too late to do. Never. Well, that is really, uh, that's an amazing message. I um, want to thank you so much. You're such a role model, and it's thank so wonderful. To, thank you. It's so great to be in your presence. Charlie, thank you so much. And thanks again to our listeners for listening to this edition of The Connection on WTIC News Talk 1080. Game live. The deep left center field, it is high, it is far, it is gone. Stream minor league affiliates. The Midwest League home run leader. And watch the best baseball highlights and look-ins on MLB Big Inning. MLB at bat is your all-in-one live baseball subscription for only $3.99 per month. Deep left field, it's gonna go! Alvarez ties the game! Subscribe to at bat within the MLB app today. Major League Baseball trademarks used with permission.